in Matthew chapter 5, toward the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, probably Jesus' most famous single message, he says this to his followers in verses 13 through 16 of Matthew 5. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I think it's interesting in that passage and and important for us to see that the kind of life that Jesus is calling us to is one of good works, to be sure, but good works that don't make us look impressive, but rather good works that somehow bring glory to God. He says, let your light so shine that men may see your good works and say, not you're really special people, but to give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So there's a way to live where God is the one seen as the the reason behind and the strength and the motivation and the power behind the good works. And I think it's pretty plain if you consider the analogy that Jesus gives us there of salt and light. Salt in this day would have been used really mostly as a preservative to keep meat from rotting, right? They didn't have refrigerators and stuff to just toss it into. So they would put salt on it to keep it from rotting so that it would be useful longer. So if you consider the followers of Jesus as the kind of a preservative in the world, in a sense, to kind of keep evil at bay, if you will, to, sh- to, to spread good deeds and good news enough that, that the darkness in the world doesn't get any farther. And then he calls us the light of the world, which is remarkable because Jesus called himself the light of the world in John chapter 8. He said, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but have the light of life. And here he turns that toward his followers. And he says, you are the light of the world. And then he says, if there's a city on a hill, everyone can see it. There's no way to hide it if it's on a hill. Because in this agrarian uh, culture, and these mountains and things, when there was a city that was raised up, and these buildings and things, it was very obvious. It was obvious to everybody. It couldn't be hidden. And in the same way, you don't light a lamp and then like cover it up with something so you can't see the light. You let it give light to everyone in the house. And in the same way, your light is to shine to those around you in the world. So you're to be a preservative, um, uh, the, the salt of the earth, and you're to be this kind of light shining and showing forth the glory of God to everyone around. In a, in a, in a word, I think you could say that what Jesus is calling his followers to is to live weird. To live weird, to be different, to stand out, to be thought strange probably in some ways by your culture. And I think in some ways that might be the very aspect of this calling and of the good deeds of, the, of Christians that gives particular glory to God and not to themselves because there's no reason that they would be doing these things for any other reason that God had called them and saved them and, and, and commissioned them to do this. So Jesus essentially calls us to live weird. 
And really, the last section of the Baptist faith and message, our statement of faith, enumerates several beliefs uh, that basically amount to this. Basically, because we believe the gospel, we will live weird. It's kind of what these last several articles of the statement of faith say. So we've been walking through a little bit, not like piece by piece or article by article, but we've been talking through the statement of faith and kind of what it entails, what it represents. We saw in week one the gospel foundations of the scripture. So the word of God, the Bible, as the source and foundation of everything else that we believe, teach, do, practice, all right? Uh, And then last week we really just told the, the whole big story of the Bible, which is the story of the universe, the story of history that God is still writing and that God is inviting us into uh, the story of taking a broken world and redeeming it and reshaping it and making it new again through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the part that he calls us to play in that, to, to see his redemption in our own lives and then to uh, spread that redemption uh, to the world. And so we talked really about uh, just that big story, which if you were to read through the statement of faith, like articles 2 through 10, would kind of just tell that story in a lot more words and fancier words and sometimes more confusing sentences. Um, but, but that's really what it's doing, it's telling that story. So the last portion of the, of the statement of faith, the Baptist faith, the message, really covers implications of what we believe. So we've kind of said, this is what the Bible is and where we get things from. This is what the gospel is. This is the story that God is writing that we're all a part of. And because all of that is true, Here's kind of some things that we think are important and worth kind of putting a flag in the ground, so to speak, on. So, Jesus calls us to live weird, and the Baptist faith and message really just sort of uh, expresses some of the ways that this weirdness might uh, come out. And if you think about it, Jesus himself was called crazy and demon-possessed. At the end of John chapter 8, we saw that just a few weeks ago. Uh, Jesus said, the world has hated me, it's going to hate you too, right? So I mean, there's, if we're going to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, there's going to be some weirdness. There's going to be some, uh, a, 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 a sense in which we won't fit in. And I think that's hard for us because we want to fit in. We like to try to fit in as best we can. But really the call to follow Jesus is a call to stand out. It's a call to be a, a square peg in a round hole world, if you will. So just a note here, I'm not going to cover every article uh, in this portion of the Statement of Faith, just kind of a sampling of them. But if you would want, if you want the full statement, you want to see everything else that's there, I've got a couple of copies left on the welcome table back there. Um, You're welcome to take one with you. Or you can find this on the web at sbc.net slash bfm2000. You can all remember that, I'm sure. Just kidding. All right. Um, But it's, you can easily Google this and find it. uh, And it's all there online. So let's get to this. I'm going to pick out just a few of these particular statements and talk about what it means to live weird. So, number one, it's weird to be publicly religious. It's weird to be publicly religious. This is kind of a summary of Article 15 of the Statement of Faith. So, let's just be honest here. People don't like religious people brandishing their religion about in the public square right? George Carlin, the old comedian, his 11th commandment is, thou shalt keep thy religion to thyself. Right? That's, kind of the, that's kind of a prevailing ethic in our world. Like, it's totally fine 
to be religious, to believe what you want to believe, to have whatever, you know, see the world however you want to see it, as long as you do that in private, right? Just do that in your own house. Just think what you want to think as long as it doesn't affect anybody else or affect how you live one way or another, right? As long as it has practically no uh, result or effect in the real world, we're okay with you having religious beliefs. That's kind of the, that's kind of the tone that our culture has toward religion. Here's a portion of the statement from uh, the Baptist Faith and Message. All Christians are under obligation to seek to make the will of Christ supreme in our own lives and in human society. In the spirit of Christ, Christians should oppose racism, every form of greed, selfishness, and vice, and all forms of sexual immorality, including adultery, homosexuality, and pornography. We should work to provide for the orphaned, the needy, the abused, the aged, the helpless, and the sick. We should speak on behalf of the unborn and contend for the sanctity of all human life from, con- from conception to natural death. Now, if you just walk through that list of the things that our statement of faith says we should care about as followers of Jesus, I think you'll find that the vast majority of the things mentioned there are not things that our world values. They're not things that our world cares about or think are important. Or if they do think it's important, they have a kind of a twisted way of seeing it or approaching it. But for the most part, to stand up for any one of these, this kind of list of virtues um, or causes is to be outside the mainstream of our culture. It's to say, I see this differently. It's to say, I value something different than what the world values. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32 and 33, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So there is an aspect of of being a Christian, of being a follower of Jesus that requires us to be a Christian in public. It's not just in the privacy of our homes as long as it doesn't touch anybody else and bother anybody else and what I believe doesn't affect anyone in any way. That, that's, it doesn't work that way. Jesus says if you're going to be a follower, you're going to have to do this in public. You're going to have to do this out loud. You're going to have to stand for some things that might make you unpopular. You're going to have to say some things that might get you some strange looks. And in our day and time, and honestly for the the apostles in the first century as well, maybe even legal ramifications, legal troubles, and government sanctions and whatever else. So at times, what it means to follow Jesus is to stand up for stuff that no one else is going to stand up for. To be a voice for the ones that don't have a voice themselves. To stand for morality and purity in an age where total libertarian freedom is celebrated as a a human right. You do whatever you want to do and who cares is like a virtue in our culture. And that's just not what the scriptures teach. That's just not what Jesus lived. That's not what Jesus calls us to. And so there will be times where what we believe and what we do and what we say um, will put us kind of on the outs with people and make us stand outside the circle, if you will. And so there's a gut check here. Am I willing to live weird? Am I willing to 
not just believe in Jesus in private, but to actually carry out the implications of that faith in the world and in the public square. So we ought to be not just privately thinking that these things are right, right? Yeah, yeah, I think racism is bad. Yeah, I think greed and selfishness are bad. Yeah, I believe in, you know, morality, and I, I think we should, uh, you know, not support all these other things, right? I think providing for the orphans are good, is a good thing to do. It's not just like an opinion. It's a life. It's things that we should actively be engaging in. So there's a sense in which the, our faith in Jesus calls us to activism in a way, right? So there, there is an there is a cause taking up here that Jesus is calling us to. So it's weird to be publicly religious. It just is. That's just not what people do here. People, don't, people want you to just keep it to yourself. But that's not what Jesus calls us to. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, and if, you want, and if you want me to, you know, to confess you basically as a follower before my father, then you've got to confess me before people, no matter what that looks like. It's weird. Secondly, it's weird to give your money away Weird to give your money away. Article 13 on stewardship would point us toward this. So the American way is basically earn as much as you can and then take the rest, right? I mean, just get whatever you can no matter what it takes. That's what we've we got to build our kingdom. We've got to get more stuff. We've got to pad our pockets. That's what we're about. But that's not the way of Jesus. And that's not the way of his followers. That's not what he's called us to. I was reminded in, in thinking on this uh, statement of this article uh, of the story of the widow in Luke 21. Feel free to turn there if you like. In Luke 21, Jesus is at the temple and there's some people um, coming to give their offerings, right? So giving their, their offerings to the church, so to speak, to the temple. The beginning of chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, says, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Jesus isn't impressed by the extravagant, abundant gifts of people that have way more than enough. That doesn't impress Jesus. He doesn't care. Because, honestly, he doesn't need the money. Like, let's just be straight about that. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and all that. The, the, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He doesn't need money. He's not going, oh, man, I wish somebody would help me out, right? So he's not impressed with the big gift because he doesn't need it. What he's impressed with is the heart. He's impressed with the heart of this widow who is willing to give everything that she has, even though it's a small amount. Why would she do that? It's weird to give your money away. Why would you possibly want to take everything that you have and give it to your, to your church, no less? Like, okay, find somebody to help or something. But like, she's giving all of her money to the, at the temple. doesn't make any sense unless God has changed her unless her love for god is so deep that it that it makes the 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 stuff that she has or the the means of getting stuff seem meaningless and seem worthless to her by comparison here's part of the in part here's the article on stewardship god is the source of all blessings temporal and spiritual all that we have 
and are, we owe to him. They, that's followers of Jesus, they are therefore under obligation to serve him with their time, talents, and material possessions, and should recognize all these as entrusted to them to use for the glory of God and for helping others. According to the scriptures, Christians should contribute of their means cheerfully, regularly, systematically, proportionately, and liberally for the advancement of the Redeemer's cause on earth. God owns it all. So whatever you have, you have because, it, because God gave it to you, right? God entrusted it to you. I think that's the, the better word than just gave it to you. He entrusted it to you. And there's an expectation that you're going to use what he gives you well. You're going to use what he gives you with his glory in mind. You're going to use what he gives you to serve others, right? Not just to build your own kingdom. And I like that this statement points out that we're not just talking about dollars and cents. We're talking about your time. We're talking about your talents, the things that, the abilities that God has given you, the skills that you have. We ought to think about our time and our talents and our treasures, to use the classic little T alliteration there. We should think of those things in terms of how can I serve someone else and how can I glorify God with these resources? Not how can I be most comfortable? How can I be most entertained? How can I be most uh, the least uh, inconvenienced? That, that should not be our driving ethic. And yet, in our world, in our culture, it's not hard to see that that really is kind of how we operate, how the world operates. We want more, bigger, better, newer, we want easier, we want convenient, we want the bigger screen, the newer car, right? That's, we want anything that's going to make it like, man, if I could live my whole life, I could do my job, I could eat my meals, I could do everything from my couch, how amazing would that be, right? That's kind of what, what we try to do. Let's build our life around me and ease and comfort and just really not think very much about how other people might be struggling or suffering. Or think about whether God is pleased or honored by that. So it's weird to give your money away, to give your time away, to use your talents for someone else. It's weird. If you're talented, you go try to get a record deal or something so you can get a bunch of money and get famous and get praise. It's weird to use your talent for someone else. Why would you do that? Well, people who love God and have been changed by the gospel give their things away, their time, their talents, and their treasure. That's that's an aspect of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, is to say, man, everything that I have is from you. And Jesus, by the way, didn't hold anything back from us. Jesus gave everything that he had. Jesus left heaven and glory and status and honor and worship of angels to become a baby in a barn and to grow up in obscurity and to suffer and to die for us. That's what it means. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to follow in his footsteps. He gave everything up. He didn't hold anything back. And so in the same way, we ought to have open hands with the things that he gives to us, time, talents, treasure, open hands. Lord, how do, how do you want me to use this? How can I serve somebody else? How can I bring glory to you? So that people can see, remember Matthew 5, so that people will see my good deeds and give glory to God. 
why would you give all your stuff away? Tell me about that. What would make you do that? Well, I've been given so much in Jesus Christ that I am willing to give and be generous and to, to give these things away for the good of others and the glory of God. It's weird to give your money away, but that's what he calls us to. There's a third one. It's weird to cling to traditional marriage and family values or beliefs, even just an understanding of what a family is and what a marriage is and who is an eligible candidate to be married and all those, all those questions. It's weird in our day and time. It's not just weird, it's like people are hostile to that. There was a time, like 1950s, 1960s, when like these kind of traditional Christian values about marriage and family um, and purity and all those kind of things. There was a time where that was kind of the favored, privileged, if you will, view, the majority view of our culture. I don't know if you haven't been paying attention, but that's not the case anymore. It's not the majority view anymore. So to hold these things are strange and can land you in serious trouble. There's a quote uh, that's probably misattributed to Martin Luther, but I really like the quote. So I'm going to use the quote, but just don't, don't think that it was actually Martin Luther that said this. We don't know who really said it. If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the word of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing him. Where the battle rages... There the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefront besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. So to be a faithful, strong, brave, courageous soldier, except at the point of battle, is not to be a good soldier, right? So wherever the point of greatest resistance, the point of greatest tension exists, that is the very point at which We've got to be ready to stand. And in our culture and in our day and time, I don't think that there's any clearer place where the battle rages uh, other than in the realm of sexuality and marriage, uh, gender, orientation, and beyond. All right? It, it, you could lengthen that list and talk more detailed than I'm going to right here. But the bottom line is people don't respect a traditional Christian position on these matters. And the, what, what the statement of faith here kind of enumerates, it's already hinted at it in the, uh, the statement on how we're to relate to the world, how we oppose vice and immorality and pornography and all those things. It's already covered a little bit of that. And now it's going to get more specific about marriage. So read this, this statement here. It's, is it up there? Yep. So marriage is the uniting of one man and one woman in covenant commitment for a lifetime. It's God's unique gift to reveal the union between Christ and his church and to provide for the man and the woman in marriage the framework for intimate companionship, the channel of sexual expression according to biblical standards, and the means for procreation of the human race. There's more to the statement than that, but that's enough for now. So here, here's the truth. This is what Christians have believed about marriage for about 2,000 years. This is the um, historically orthodox Christian position on marriage, as spelled out by Scripture. The Bible starts with marriage in Genesis 2, where God gives Eve to the man, and it says, they became one flesh. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The Bible ends with a marriage, namely, 
the wedding feast of the Lamb, where Jesus has won his bride, the church, and brought them into his presence, and there is a supper celebrating this marriage. The Bible begins and ends with marriage. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that the very meaning of marriage is the gospel. Marriage exists to give a picture of the relationship of Jesus with his church. Jesus gave up his life for the church so that she might be redeemed and renewed and purified just as a husband is to love his wife and to, and to give himself up for her and to sacrificially love and lead her. And just as the church looks to Christ as, as a leader and, uh, and she faithfully and gladly serves him, so she is to serve, a wife is to serve her husband, right? That's, the, that's the, the picture of marriage in the New Testament. And Paul says, this is about the gospel. This is a mystery now being revealed. And let's be straight. People don't like that. People in our culture do not like that message. And to even suggest that that's what you believe is not just to get a weird look. It's to invite the ire, the anger, the, and, and attack in some ways from people in our spheres of life. So it's not easy. I mean, this, this is, I'd say this is kind of the, the point of the spear, if you will, in terms of a tangible cultural expression of darkness, of spiritual oppression, of the gospel being held back. I think, it, I think this is the tip of the spear right here. And so if we're going to be faithful followers of Jesus if we're going to be a church, a covenant community that is faithful to the teaching of scriptures and the glory of God, we can't give in on this point. You have to be willing to stand even in the midst of battle, at the, where the battle rages, to use that quote again. And this is more than just, I mean, I understand that what, what I'm saying and what this calls us to is more than just, you know, being uncomfortable or just deciding, okay, I'm going to hold an unpopular view. This actually can put you in some really unpleasant situations and some real relational tension and struggle with people who see this differently or people who are actively living a lifestyle that opposes what you say that you profess, right? So this has real world challenges for us. And I think there's, again, there's a gut check for us here. Are, are, am I going to be faithful to Christ? Am I going to live out and believe in and stand for the truths and the principles of his word when it counts the most? Or when the battle rages, am I going to go fight somewhere else? Right? Oh, look at my orthodox uh, Christology. Right? I got a really great understanding of who Jesus is. Let's talk about the incarnation. I like that. Rather talk about that than all that marriage stuff. Like, look at look at how faithful I am over here, right? We we like to try to strengthen other things and go, oh, see, we're we're doing just fine. But if you give in at the point where the attack is the strongest, you lose. You lose the battle. So it's weird. It's weird to to hold to to believe in and to support you know a traditional Christian understanding of of marriage and gender and human relationships. Nevertheless, it's what Jesus calls us to. Final one I'll talk about today is uh, it's weird to tell people about your faith. Kind of overlaps a little bit with the one about holding religion in public instead of just in private. 
But it's weird to tell people about your faith. To invite them to believe the same things. It's weird. It may, it's uncomfortable. It makes people uncomfortable. But here's the article on evangelism and missions. It is the duty and privilege of every follower of Christ and of every church of the Lord Jesus Christ to endeavor to make disciples of all nations. It continues, it is the duty of every child of God to seek constantly to win the lost to Christ by verbal witness undergirded by a Christian lifestyle and by other methods in harmony with the gospel of Christ. All right, so that last sentence says you can be creative. You can, you know, I'm not, we're not shutting off uh, things that God might use to give you a connection to people or to help you to present the gospel. But there is a responsibility upon the fo- a follower of Jesus to speak of Christ. All right, so we want to win people to Christ, use the language of the statement, to win people to Christ, not merely by being nice people, right? We want to be nice people. We don't want less than that, right? We, we want to be kind. We want to be thoughtful and friendly. We want a, our lifestyle to represent Jesus and, and to point people to him. But beyond that, there's, there, at some point, there has to be words. There's got to be a verbal witness, undergirded by a Christian lifestyle. I think that's the right way to think about it. If we're going to be faithful witnesses to Jesus Christ, there's got to be a point where our mouths speak the message of the good news of Jesus. And this is the good work, by the way, of our mission. Those three statements, good news, good friends, good work, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about carrying the gospel of Jesus in word and in deed, all right? It's not service for its own sake, but for the purpose of introducing people to Jesus Christ. Now, and honestly, is there anything like scarier, stranger, that feels more risky than talking to people about your faith? If you can, if you, I don't know if you relate with this at all, but I've, this has been where I, how my relationship with evangelism has been uncomfortable for most of my life. I've never been one of those that is like supernatural, has an easy time just like starting a conversation. Hey, if you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven? I'm not saying that that's what you should do. I'm just saying, talking to people, opening a conversation about spiritual things, to talk about Jesus is hard. I've known people who like I would say that is a gift that God has given them. Like they are passionate about evangelism and they are good at it. Like it is natural and easy and like they would rather talk about that than anything else. Um, I know I've known people that are like that. I'm not one of those people. I wouldn't consider that one of my giftings. However, it's still one of my responsibilities, whether it's a gift or not, because I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, this is what you're going to do. In Acts 1.8, you remember just before he ascends to heaven. So he's raised from the dead. He spent some time with his disciples. And now he's about to ascend back to heaven and leave uh, and send the Holy Spirit to his people. And they say, when, when are you going to restore the kingdom? He says, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. Verse 8 of Acts 1. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. 
He didn't ask them to be witnesses. He didn't invite them to be witnesses. He didn't say, I'd like you to consider whether or not you'll be a witness. He said, fact, reality, you're witnesses. The question is, are you going to be a faithful witness or not? Are you going to be a witness that consistently points people to Jesus in word and in deed, or are you going to be something less than that? Are you going to be the kind of witness that shies away from the point of attack? Are you going to be the kind of witness that would rather keep your mouth shut and avoid the weird look that somebody might give you, or the uncomfortable reality that somebody might ask you a theological question that you don't have an answer to, and I don't, I don't want to say I don't know, so I'd rather just not talk about it. Those aren't hypotheticals for me. I've been in those moments. Sometimes I've been faithful, and other times I've not been. That's that's the reality, and I think probably that's true for most of us. So the question is, are we willing to look at what Jesus has done for us, to see how far he went to make us new, to give us new life, to redeem us from the brokenness and the sin and the, the condemnation that was coming for us that we were headed toward? through his life and death and resurrection and given us a new name and a new nature and a new future and given us the power of his Holy Spirit. That, you can't forget that. The Holy Spirit is in us. If you're trusted in Christ, he, is, he lives in you. And that's where the power comes from. So we've got to ask ourselves, and it's, I think it's sometimes moment to moment, am I willing to do this? Am I ready to do this? And do I have an eye toward what's going on around me? There's just a people awareness that I think we have to have. And I think we have to ask the Lord for it. Because it's very easy to kind of just go through your day, go from place one to place two to place three, get home, kick up your feet, and go like, what did I do today? Like, I don't even, I wasn't even, was I around anybody? Like, I don't even remember, you know, because we just got to get through our to-do list or whatever. We just burn right through it. So there's a, there's a kind of like slow down, pause, look, be aware of the people around you, the moments around you where there might be an opportunity think about some questions you could ask people that might open the door if you're having a conversation in the lunchroom with a coworker or something. What's a question you could ask, an open-ended enough question that might open the door to have some kind of a spiritual conversation? I'm not saying that in every conversation you've got to share the ABCs of how to become a Christian, but I do think at some point the good news that Jesus lived and died and rose on your behalf and you can have a relationship with God if you trust in him has got to be there or we haven't been a faithful witness. No matter how many tires you've changed or meals you've served or encouraging notes you've left, if you never get around to the core truths of what Jesus has done to to take sinners from death to life, then we haven't been a faithful witness. And that's weird. It's weird. It's hard. It's strange. It feels risky. But that's what it means. (laughs) to be a follower of Jesus. That's what it means to be a church. That's what it means to be a covenant community of people who have been bought by the blood of Christ, who have then been commissioned out into the world. Remember what Jesus said? Go, therefore, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded. Well, how are we going to baptize disciples if we don't find the disciples? How are we going to find the disciples if we don't tell them, right? If we don't carry the good news that there's life and hope and a future through faith in Christ. I'm going to finish up with a uh, statement by a guy named Denny Burke, who's the president of the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. We understand that such Christian confession, the things we're talking about, holding to these countercultural 
ancient, old-fashioned, call it what you will, kind of views. We understand that such Christian confession sounds strange to modern secular ears. After all, at the heart of all this is the conviction that a once-dead Jew is the world's true king. We are accustomed to being regarded as strange and countercultural. For the orthodox, as lowercase o, keeping Christianity weird is what we've always done. It is what we must always do if we are to be the salt and light that Jesus calls us to be.